It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. We made this. Hello everyone, Kurt here to introduce my chosen episode for the X-Cast from deep within the Pentagon archives. At time of recording, the X-Cast crew are currently going through a MythArc rewatch. The MythArc will always be the reason why I love the X-Files. Many people favour the Monster of the Week, but for me, seeing Mulder jump on a train or Scully reading out what's in the files of the digital tape will always be my thing. I have this week chosen One Breath. It is one of the best episodes of The X-Files for starters, but also I have vivid memories of listening to the X-Cast coverage of it with Tony and Darren Mooney, which is why when asked about reopening a podcast episode, this one jumped straight to mind. Darren has an incredible wealth of knowledge and for him to give his time to discuss the show on The X-Cast is truly a blessing. Way more than I could have hoped for. I remember as I was speeding through the X-Cast when first discovering it, getting to this episode and just taking everything Darren and Tony had to say in. Little did I know that I would then have the privilege of spending hours upon hours with Darren discussing Millennium over on the Time Is Now podcast. If I had the chance, I would have said to reopen the season two finale of the Millennium, appropriately named The Time Is Now, an episode about an outbreak, fitting for the start of the 2020 decade. But that isn't to be. Here is the X-Cast with one breath. And remember, trust no one. Don't try and threaten me, Mulder. I've watched presidents die. everyone and welcome back to the X-Cast. The truth is in here. I'm your host Tony Black once again and I'm joined for this dissection of One Breath once again with um, the venerable Mr. Darren Mooney. Hello, pleasure to be back. It's a pleasure to have you back and um, I've never described anyone as venerable before but uh, I'm hoping that's I've a good thing. never been described as venerable. I've been described as some other things but... Uh... Uh, you know, I, I'm assuming venerable is a good thing. I'm going I'm to look this up because I, I use adjectives sometimes and I get, well, okay, accorded a great deal of respect, especially because of age, wisdom or character. So I don't know if that, that means... That doesn't seem at all accurate. <laughs> well, it also seems that I'm suggesting that you're old. So it's a backhanded compliment. So I apologize. Beware, guys. Don't call anyone venerable unless you look it up first. We're going to move on and go straight into the episode in question, which we're talking about this week. We are here for the eighth episode of season two, One Breath. One Breath is the, as I say, the eighth episode of the second season of The X-Files. It first aired on November the 11th, 1994. 
and was written by Glenn Morgan and James Wong, directed by R.W. Goodwin. The episode sees Dana Scully return after um, being abducted and presumed dead by her family and by Mulder, who then goes on a crusade in order to try and find the conspiratorial forces that took her, while Scully teeters between the barrier of life and death. Presently we have Dana listed in critical condition, comatose. There is complete unawareness of self or environment. There is no evidence of language comprehension, no evidence of voluntary responses to external stimuli. My apologies, but uh, no one here can determine how Dana arrived at the hospital, administered, or how she was attended to in such a critical condition. Um, Because of the absence of Dana's recent medical history, I'm at a loss for prognosis. I can't determine with certainty how long she's been in this state. You haven't told us why she's like this. We just don't know, Mrs. Scully. There are no indications of acute injuries, traumatic or non-traumatic. I can't find any signs of degenerative or metabolic disorders. We have conducted every test possible. I'd like her examined for trace evidence. Uh, She's been bathed and cleaned since her admittance. Also, there is a situation which I don't know if you're aware of. The FBI has notified us of the terms of Dana's living will. What is it? What did she say? Well, Dana is a doctor. Her criteria for terminating life support is quite specific. She states that um, if her Glasgow outcome scale lists her... She doesn't want to live in this condition. So out of 10, Darren, where would you rate one breath? This is Stone Cold 10. Oh, good, because that's exactly what I think. <laughs> Go on, then. Why, why is this perfect? This is, is perfect because it is. it was on the... Last time you asked me to pick my favourite episode of the show, and there was a short list of episodes, and this was very, very high on that particular short list. Um, I'd probably say it's my second or third favourite episode the show ever produced. Uh, it's just an astounding piece of television and a wonderful piece of drama. It's a fascinatingly small-scale, intimate, almost personal exploration of like grief and loss and the feeling of futility... It feels, again, like a lot of Morgan and Wong scripts. It has this immensely personal core that you can really relate to. Even if, you know, you've never been in a situation where your partner has been abducted by aliens and left for dead by a government conspiracy. There are still parts of the story, which I I believe happens to a lot of people. I was going to say, most of us have been there. Yeah, you know, I haven't personally. um, What? But Yeah, I know. it's, It's startling. I am shocked. I know. But it... It sort of it captures the feeling of waiting in a hospital, uh, which I think everybody has experienced, where you're waiting in a hospital for yeah. somebody you care about, and there's nothing you can do yourself to help, and you just feel so useless. And you know, in theory, that you being there is a good thing, and you being there is helping. But you also know that nothing you can do will have an effect on what will actually happen. And I think the sense of Mulder's powerlessness that runs through the episode is something that I think everybody's everybody's felt when they've been with a relative who has been on, for example, on life support or in a coma or, you know, like tittering on the edge. And you, there's nothing you can do except be there with other people and wait. Yeah. And it just, it feels so, it feels like what you're doing is so useless and so not contributing in any way, shape or form. And one breath really captures that. Like, in those circumstances where I've been in that situation where it's been relatives dying, there hasn't been a convenient uh, government conspiracy that I can blame and track down and hunt <laughs> and basically make people pay for what's happening. But 
if there was, I get the sense I kind of I'd want to follow that just to have something to focus on and to feel like I was contributing. Well, this is the thing, isn't it, with Mulder throughout this episode? You know, he's he is doing his best to not feel helpless because yeah. he can't he can't do anything about what's happened to Scully and and the fact that she may well die, which is most for the most of the episode. It seems like she's she's at death's door and she really is at death's door. He can't do anything about that. So the only thing he can do is try and you know, hunt down mercilessly the people who did this to her. And and that's the big battle he has throughout the episode. And again, Morgan and Wong, much like in Little Green Men when we spoke before, how Mulder has a really contained arc that, yeah. you know, in the one episode. In this episode, it's very much about him accepting that it's okay if he's helpless because as long as he's there for Scully. Yeah. And that's the beautiful story that encompasses a lot of really dark areas that this episode does. And... It's it's why it would be in my top three as well. It, it, whenever whenever I think of my favourite episodes of of the X Files, it's not quite my number one, but it's no. very close, very it re- close. It really is, and I think it's also it's a lot cleverer than uh, most people sort of give it credit for. Like it is a fantastic character piece for for Mulder. I think that Morgan has talked about when he came back for the second season. David Duchovny challenged Morgan and Wong to come up with a script that was like Beyond the Sea, but for Mulder. And they sort of, I think they tried that with Little Green Men, uh, and I think it worked quite well in that context. But I think One Breath is, is probably the closest that they come. But I think it also has things to say about, like, masculinity and about uh, identity and about power uh, that are kind of reasonably core themes of the X-Files. But there's, there's this idea of, like, masculinity and femininity that runs the episode uh, from the teaser uh, through to the closing scenes, where, like, Mulder's repeatedly asking himself, he doesn't want to feel powerless, but he's repeatedly challenged by characters like Mr. X, like the cigarette smoking man, and even by Skinner, um, to be manly, to, to behave like a man is expected to behave in these situations. And there's a sense that like Morgan and Wong are, are writers who are very much informed by like a pulp school. They love old school horror. Like if you look like they did, Ice is pretty much the thing. Yeah. Uh, as much as they may protest otherwise, it is, it is very much <laughs> the thing. We all uh, know it. <laughs> we all know it, and we love it for that. Yeah. And there's a sense then that, like, they're familiar with, there's a really noxious school of, like, 70s horror, and it still happens today, where you have this narrative of men whose women in their lives are taken and victimized, and this serves then as an excuse for the men to go on a rip-roaring rampage of revenge. I mean, the Death Wish films are probably the best example from the 70s, uh, which are, are really uncomfortable watches today. But even stuff like, say, The Last House on the Left, the Wes Craven uh, horror film and stuff like that, where you have these narratives of women who are hurt purely so that the men around them can go and exact vengeance on their behalf and feel righteous. And One Breath is just a beautiful subversion of that narrative in that it sets it up so it looks like Mulder is going to go on a rampage. Like he rants, who did this to her? I'll do anything to bring her back. And then it ultimately, and you know, Mr. X offers him the, the chance to, uh, to take out the people who hurt Scully with, and I love this phrase, terminal intensity. <laughs> terminal which, intensity. It sounds like it should be like a Jean-Claude Van Damme movie. Yeah. And then ultimately, <laughs> Mulder decides, he finally comes through conversations with, with Melissa and with Margaret Scully, uh, the two most prominent female characters in the episode who aren't Scully herself, that the best thing he can do is to give up that idea of masculine righteousness and violence um, and embrace a more sort of healing, feminine approach to, to what's happened to Scully. And I think, I think that's a very clever, I think it was a very potent sort of framework for an episode in like 1990. This would have been 1994. And I think even today it's good. Like, I think, um, I don't know if you watch Doctor Who, for example, to pick, to pick an example. 
But they do, uh, Stephen Moffat, uh, who's the current showrunner, is setting aside next year. In his second uh, season, he did uh, an arc with, uh, with another red-haired character who was pregnant and got abducted by aliens who conveniently look like grey aliens as well. That's true. Uh, which is very consciously riffing on the iconography of the X-Files in his sixth season. But he also, he basically borrows the, the plot arc of One Breath, where he sets up this idea of the Doctor going off to have, to, to have revenge and retribution on behalf of his wounded companion who suffered this loss. And ultimately that backfires spectacularly, and he realises that the only thing he can do in that situation, the only thing he should do, is to be there for the person who needs him. And I think, I think that's a, a fascinating arc. And I think it's a very clever twist on one of Pulp Fiction's less um, satisfying sort of tropes, narrative tropes. It had never occurred to me that that season six arc in Doctor Who was similar to One Breath. That's fascinating. That's really true as well. <laughs> that's very true. What happens to Amy Pond is very similar. It's just obviously with Doctor Who, you see the aliens and it's a lot more on the nose and colourful. But it's the same story, isn't it, effectively? But the, you mentioned earlier about how Duchovny challenged Morgan and Wong. Their original intent for the episode was that it was going to be based entirely upon a non-fiction book that Morgan had read called Raising the Dead, which um, was written by a surgeon called Richard Seltzer and detailed dreams that he had uh, experienced while being comatose for 20 days, 23 days in 1991. Apparently, he'd been dead, declared dead during his coma. And obviously, that's a fate that Skinner talks about when he talks to Mulder about his, his experience Vietnam. with the paranormal yeah, in Vietnam. And then he underwent a recovery. Morgan was fascinated by the book and uh, he'd wanted to write an episode around it since the start of the show. Um, and he thought it'd be a really good story for Duchovny to get his teeth into. But then uh, when the whole story about Scully being abducted came about, they changed the comatose character to Scully. And um, he basically fashioned the concept around, of that into elements of this of this episode with obviously a lot more to it. So it's interesting where that that came from and they they also wanted to make sure they feature aside the paranormal they they funnily enough what we, we talked about in um the little green men about the hope in the series as opposed to all the negativity and one of the hopeful things they tried to get in there was angels and the idea of peace and as morgan had said the, sh the show so far had been very bleak and dark and they wanted something to reflect that and as morgan says the whole episode the theme of the episode was summed up when melissa says to Mulder, just because belief is positive and good doesn't make it silly or trite and that's and that's a beautiful sentiment really that they wanted to get across and they were able to do through the very mystical element of nurse owens which appears through the episode which we'll talk more about so they had they had a lot of things they wanted to tick off in this and they, man they managed to all get into this concoction which is remarkable the way it all tethers together which is two very very different kinds of stories and kinds of ideas that could have been their own episodes effectively but blend together beautifully and it's why i would give it a 10 absolutely yeah. just sort of on, on that just when you're talking about morgan and wong and being being positive and the idea of the positive paranormal one of the things that, that's fascinating about their work sort of throughout the show and it sort of came up in, in little green men where the idea of the aliens as a, as a metaphor for something that beyond mankind that you could reach out into space and, and not be alone in the universe. But Morgan and Wong generally seem to have a more positive view of the, the paranormal than I think Carter did traditionally. So stuff like in EBE, for example, there is the suggestion back in the first season that the aliens are, are innocents and goods and that mankind are the monsters, that Deep Throat feels guilty about killing an alien, staring down into its innocent eyes, not recognizing what was happening to it. Um, and I think that, and interestingly enough, I'd argue that's that's a major influence on, say, the mythology of the the revival miniseries as well, where there's a sense that the aliens are not necessarily the monsters in the mythology, which they sort of became, I think, after Morgan and Wong left. 
So I, I do like that idea of the paranormal existing as something hopeful beyond mankind and something that, like, the world is full of monsters, but sometimes those monsters are just people who smoke cigarettes. That's really interesting in that, you know, to look at it from that perspective of, of who are the villains, you know, who, yeah. who, who, are the bad, who are the bad guys in this? But yeah, on IMDb, it's got 8.6 out of 10, which I think is slightly too low <laughs> for me. It is, actually. I'm very, I'm very surprised. Do you have the, the... I'd be kind of curious to see what the top-rated episode is on IMDb of The X-Files overall. Just checking on IMDb, the top-rated episode of all time for The X-Files, including the miniseries, is Bad Blood from Season 5, which gets 9.4 out of 10, which I can't really... No. I mean, I don't think it's the best episode ever of The X-Files, but I can't really argue that that's high, because that's fantastic. <laughs> I, I think it's one of the best crowd-pleasing episodes of The X-Files. Yeah. It's the one I go to. If, I, if I'm feeling down and I want to watch an X-Files episode, that's the one to watch. That's the one to go to, yeah. yeah. But yeah, I think a lot of people can agree that One Breath is a stunner. So let's, uh, let's talk about it in more depth and analyse the episode. So it begins the teaser with... Uh, an interesting voiceover and collection of scenes which go back to Scully's childhood. And we have uh, Margaret Scully talking about a time when Dana was a young girl playing with her brothers and she wounds an animal. She shoots an animal with a gun and she feels desperately... Hello, it is Ryan and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favourite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Sad about what she's done. It feels a lot of remorse. It ties in then into, obviously, Mulder and Margaret getting... Scully's headstone, given that Margaret has effectively given up and has said she's dead. Let's let's put her to rest and everything, which Mulder can't handle. But it, it's it's a nice way, I think, of of tying into the theme of helplessness as well, and of of feeling that sense of grief and and it's a it's a it's a really unusual way to open the episode, isn't it? Really, it's very very poetic. Um, yeah. It's kind of the episode in miniature almost. In that, like, you have yeah. this idea of uh, Scully's brothers, uh, which, by the way, I love the wig on Bill Junior. Um, <laughs> just just pause to note. It's it's like we talked about how good the child good actor wig. playing Fox Mulder in um, Little Green Men was, but and the child actors are fine, but the costuming is like it, it feels like this, the episode is shouting seventies at the top of its voice when it comes to the the wig <laughs> that they've stuck on the young boy. That's yeah, you, that's true. <laughs> but the um, the the whole thing is is it's the episode in miniature. So you have this idea of like masculine violence and that it's Scully's brothers who get her the gun, and it's Scully's brothers who come up with the idea of shooting the snake. It's Bill Jr. who throws the snake and starts shooting at it. Mm. And it's Scully who, in the end, feels compassion towards it. And she picks it up and she holds it in her hand as if wishing it back to life, which is what Mulder ultimately sort of does later in the episode with Scully. He doesn't pick her up, but he, he holds her hand standing by her bedside, sitting by her bedside, saying that he's there, and anything he could do to bring her back, he just wishes that he could. Yeah. Um, and there's a sense of responsibility as well and that scully shot at the snake and Mulder 
feels this responsibility for drawing Scully into the world that led her to, to this situation. So I, I think it's a very poetic sort of uh, setup. Like it's, it's the entire episode told through allegory in the opening two minutes, which I, th- I think works beautifully. Uh, I agree. I, it's, it's a really... The, the Mark Snow's music is perhaps slightly too saccharine at, at times, but it's, it's, a beautiful, it's a beautiful opening. And also it struck me that this is... I think this is the only time we ever see Charles Scully... Yes, <laughs> it, 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 for the entire show, and that always that always really struck me as odd. Yeah, um, I completely forgot that he existed until he showed yeah. up in uh, was the home again, and even then he didn't show up. No, he just he was on the he, he was he uh, did we hear his voice on a phone we did, call? We did, and that was it. You know, and we obviously we see Bill Junior because he plays a, a role in season four or five as kind of an antagonist to Mulder almost. But he, we don't see Charles, and it always struck me as odd. I did some years ago. I used to write screenplays, and I wrote a. Uh, before the miniseries, I wrote a conclusion to the X-Files, a five-part miniseries of screenplays called Fight the Truth. And Charles Scully was a character in that. And I actually thought, I'm going to bring him in. And he turns out actually to be part of the conspiracy. Bad Charles. Uh, but Bad he, Charles. <laughs> In my head, he'd be played by Damien Lewis. Um, oh, actually, yeah, keeping with the red-haired sort of theme. Yeah, exactly. It's funny you should mention that, actually, because I, I can't remember what I was listening or what I was reading to, but there there's seem to be a lot of fans who've devoted a lot of time and energy to Charles Scully, even before home again. Um, so I think it was somebody who was commenting on home again. And they're like, yes, I was actually, I was always wondering about Charles Scully. And I can honestly say, I was looking at going, I never really wondered that hard about Charles Scully. I never felt like something was missing. Well, this is it. And that's possibly why Chris Carter never saw the need to use him because he, he was never essential. But yeah. it just always did strike me as odd as to why we never actually saw Charles even appear in one episode, you know, yeah. and or even in the episode where... In the background, where, yeah. Yeah. At you know. the Scully Christmas dinner or whatever in you know, yeah. Christmas Carol or something. Right, exactly. Um, so it's, yeah, but um, I think that's the only time we see him. But yeah, it's it's a really nice opening. And then obviously when we see the, the, uh, the headstone for Scully, Mulder can't have it. He's like, it's too soon. It's too soon. We can't give up. And he can't look at it. And it's, yeah. it's just a really, even though obviously, you know, we know ultimately that it's unlikely Scully's going to die yeah. or she's not going to, you know, it, it's just, it's still that moment of, of really hitting the, the end. Yeah. So then when we get out of the teaser, Mulder's basically at rock bottom, isn't he? He's, yeah. he's alone in his apartment. It, the place is a tip. There's X-Files scattered everywhere because the, the, by this point, obviously it's been reopened, but he's on his own. Yeah. basically doing it and uh he's got porn on in the background replaying repeatedly the same bit <laughs> at one point there's no voices on the phone calling him a pig for failing to show up for lunch this time <laughs> yeah he doesn't well, need he's it. truly desperate and it's uh, you know obviously as you mentioned i think in little green men morgan and wonging threw this in as a uh as a, an extra thing for Mulder. and i think what is good about the porn thing which you know does crop up Sometimes, for most of the time, later on for humorous effects. But it's it's kind of a suggestion that he's he's got an addictive personality in some yeah. respects, and he has these these addictions or these vices that are very to a lot of people that would be an obsession. To him, it's just something that's there. Yeah, you know, uh, it's not even important in a way. It's just his potentially his way of as awful yeah. as this sounds, releasing a valve maybe <laughs> that he needs to. I don't yeah. want to get all, all judgmental because obviously it's uh, it's a, a personal issue, all that sort of stuff. And I'm not suggesting that you know use of porn or whatever should be considered a, a signifier of anything. But I think <laughs> the way the way that the show treats Mulder's porn addiction um, is not healthy. It's not indicative of a healthy relationship with porn. So, for example, he's watching it like Scully has joked about finding videos 
in the player at the office. Which, you know, regardless of what you think about what you do in the privacy of your own home, like, watching porn at work, probably a no-no. <laughs> it's not I'm a good not, idea, is I'm it? not entirely up to date with the FBI's sort of standard of practices, um, sort of HR guide. But generally, common sense would say that's a no-no. Yeah. Um, and I think that it's used as a way to suggest that Mulder is dysfunctional. Yeah. Um, not that he watches it, but the way that he watches it. Mm. It all plays into that element of him. Yeah, like like you've said before, not being able to relate to women quite properly and having that... Well, people in general, yes. But, well, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. But obviously then he, he gets the call and um, he's in the hospital. This is an electric moment. Obviously, you know, they don't waste time getting to Scully. Scully's there. Yeah. She's just turned up. She's covered in... Um, all kinds of tubes and, and wires and everything. As it turns out, um, Gillian Anderson had given birth to her first child, Piper, Piper Maru, 10 days before this. Can we pause and note how phenomenal that is, Tur- turning up to work at all, and then turning up to work being covered in tubes and then sitting in a boat as well, like yeah. 10 days after the birth of your child. It's that pretty good. incredible. I mean, Anderson is... Just phenomenal. She has a phenomenal reputation for like work and for showing up. Like you've read that. Have you read that interview with Brian Fuller, where he talks about she worked with him on Hannibal, and he's talking about how she shows up at the very end of the second season of Hannibal without getting too spoilery. But at the time, Anderson was between filming Crisis uh, in Los Angeles, California, and shooting The Fall in Northern Ireland. So what literally happened was she finished Crisis on Friday hopped on a plane up to Vancouver to film Hannibal uh, on the Saturday, left uh, at 2 a.m. in the morning from Vancouver Airport to fly over to Ireland, um, wow. having filmed her scenes. That's like that's an incredible uh, workload. That's commitment to, to work from, from anybody. It's, it's yeah. no wonder that when she's always asked about season 10, season 11 of The X-Files, she turn, she always turns around and says, well, you know, I'm booking jobs. I've got a lot on. Yeah. I don't know. You know, it's because yeah. she is really just like, you know, you get the sense that David Duchovny is a little bit more LA based and he kind of just sticks there, you know, but she's very much jetting about and yeah, she, she does. And she's, some of her work ethic and her work approach is interesting as well. There've been interviews where people have talked about how she, she very much beats herself up before she films anything. She'll spend a long time chastising herself and believing she's not good enough, and she will go into a real crisis and fa- crisis of faith and crisis of belief, ironically, in herself before she films anything, and then she does it really well. Yeah. One of my favourite things about reading her performance style is that, as far as Anderson's concerned, all of her characters have unique walks that are distinct from herself, which speaks to like an incredible attention to craft and detail. Mm. Um, I'd be like, hey, I'm playing a bit part. I'll just this character will probably walk like Darren walks. Uh, yeah. But no, no, this, this character, every character has a unique walk, which signifies something about themselves, which is just, I don't know, as, as, a, as a level of craft, that seems incredible. Absolutely. I mean, I think, I think there's no greater, for, for Jim Anderson to show her range, I think there's no greater comparison to say, can you really imagine the same woman playing Scully and uh, Bedelia de Maurier in Hannibal? Because they, yeah. they are like so different. And then you've got her, her ongoing run as Stella as well, yeah, from A Streetcar Named Desire. Yeah, yeah, exactly. She really can float around and play all these different yeah. kinds of characters, and she's, she's terrific, yeah. And, and she says, in terms of this filming this, just after giving birth, she said it was rough. Yeah. She says, I was on Tillinol and Codeine. And um, <laughs> she said, yeah. She said, most people would have just called in sick. Yeah, um, yeah exactly. She, she turns up, she said she spent most of her time on set lying on the tables or the beds 
occasionally she fell asleep between takes um which <laughs> 10 days after giving birth i think you can get a pass on that yeah i think so this this episode actually just while we talk about it this was supposed to be produced immediately after ascension which obviously was episode six yeah but it wasn't ready to be filmed so um they oh. produced three first as an extra episode yeah. um which meant season two had 25 originally it was supposed to be 24 oh, okay. like the first season i wondered about that well i know i know three yeah well you, you've talked about three three is a very troubled episode in a number of respects uh but yeah that's that's amazing yeah that's it is yeah it's very so that would have meant like in theory anderson wouldn't have missed any episodes of the second season despite the fact that she gave birth to a child in the middle of it which is astounding it's pretty yeah pretty impressive there's there's debate about what the studio wanted to well what the network wanted to do and what the show wanted to do after she became pregnant mm. according to anderson her argument is that i think the network wanted to to fire her and replace her um and i think carter has argued that he fought very very strongly to keep her for as long as he could it's a good job he did obviously yeah. because you know it would have been a very very well it probably wouldn't have even lasted no. 10 years well 25 years as it's turned out without Gillian anderson and it's it's just surprising they didn't have to do more episodes of Mulder on his own or finding ways to give him new partners each week which which lesser <laughs> shows would have done you know I like that the rotating celebrity partner of the week <laughs> yeah so like the the, re- the recurring sort of new chief on Brooklyn Nine-Nine <laughs> yeah exactly now well, imagine it's sort of in the mid-90s who you would have had sort of swapping in god knows <laughs> he, he probably would have just paired up with somebody on a case who is involved in the case, like a woman, usually yeah. a woman, yeah. you know. Who, who has the exact same dialogue that Scully would have <laughs> if she happened to be in this situation. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Although I'm, it would have been, I quite would have liked the idea of Mulder and the lone gunman having to team up for an episode. That would have been good. Yeah, it's, it's ironic. They kind of do that in the, the eighth season when um, yeah. when sort of Doggett is there and Doggett does have an episode where he teams up with Skinner and he teams up with the lone gunman because uh, Anderson was away uh, spending time with her daughter. That's and he kind of, you imagine that they could almost have gotten away with that in the second season. Um, although they, they probably didn't have as deep a bench or a deep enough bench to sort of support that. No, not at that point. Anyway, Mulder obviously gets to the hospital and uh, he's, as you mentioned, he's shouting at people. He's going, how did she get here? He's, it, she looks really in a bad way. And, he, you know, he's full of rage at this point. And it, it, it's just, it's very, I don't think we've ever seen him quite so personally affected by anything in, in the show up until this point. The, the rage that comes off him and the the panic and the complete confusion is phenomenal. I mean, Duchovny is absolutely brilliant throughout this entire episode. It really is. Um, and Duchovny gets, Duchovny, I think gets a hard time um, in terms of like rating his performance. And there are definitely moments in the run of the show where Duchovny sort of, where there's a switch where you can see like Duchovny engaged and Duchovny unengaged. Yeah. And there are points when Duchovny gets a script and he kind of goes, okay, into default mode, we go autopilot. But when Duchovny is on, and even when Duchovny is half trying, he's doing this sort of lackadaisical right approach. It's a phenomenal thing to watch. It's just sort of, uh, it's just wow. And again, this one breath has lots of these moments. It really does. I mean, it's, it's one of the most dramatic episodes of the X-Files in terms of character that I think the show ever did. It's got so many great moments like that. Obviously, then he goes into, um, with, with Scully's, Scully's mom, um, into the uh, prognosis from Dr. Daly which is the, uh, who's the doctor, talking about how, you know, Scully's basically at death's door. They don't know what happened. They don't know how she got there. They don't know how she ended up in all the all the medical stuff. It, conveniently, she was bathed and cleaned to scrub the evidence away. One thing that has always struck me is, and here's a question, Darren, is Dr. Daly in on it? I don't think so. I, Daly sort of strikes me as just a guy doing a job who's dealing with a guy he probably thinks is psychotic. 
like, you imagine working in, you know, okay, he's not in an A&E, he's in, he's in the, the coma ward or whatever, but you deal with sort of emotionally distraught family members all the time. And sort of, I think Mulder is just a slightly different brand of use, uh, sort of like useless and crazy than he's used to dealing with. I, I think that, you know, he's probably got four or five families he's got to talk to in the day. So he's sort of, when he's like, when he talks yeah. them through it and he seems almost clinical and almost attached and not particularly sensitive to what Mulder's talking about. I think that's just, you know, well, look, she's kind of dying. Maybe you guys should like work that through on your own and uh, stop like insinuating that I'm covering up for some sort of alien conspiracy. Do you think that anyone in the hospital's in on it? Because, I mean, it, obviously it's, it's very odd that nobody would have questioned or seen anything with Scully and... I just can't help but think that somebody, even if it's not a character we necessarily see, somebody had to be in on this. I don't know. I, I think like if you dropped her off in an ambulance with sufficient paperwork, and the hospital takes it from there on good faith. Like I imagine, like if it, if a patient arrives in a coma on death's door, you don't generally ask a lot of questions. You get the sheet and you you get the the base the paperwork and you start working on it. I, I don't imagine that you press, particularly if they show up wearing uniforms. Or I think he says she was dropped off. Isn't that the that what yeah. Daly says? Yeah. So part of me sort of suspects that it's just like, look, this is our part of the process. Our part of the process is not investigative. Our part of the process is this woman arrived. Uh, somebody was probably wearing like a, an emergency services jacket and a cap and handed us some paperwork saying that she, you know, she, she was there. Yeah. That she fell over or something or she fainted or something. So I, I don't know. I, I can sort of, I can believe that it would fall through the cracks. I believe I can believe that they'd be like, look, this is maybe a little bit unusual, uh, but we probably get one or two cases like this every every year. Maybe I'm giving the conspiracy too much credit again. <laughs> Possibly, as we talked about in Little Green Man. <laughs> yeah. Trust me, their paperwork department is probably much stronger than their tailing department. <laughs> More so, than likely, yeah. yeah. Obviously, after this, though, this is where Mulder meets who turns out to be Melissa Scully, although we don't know at first. With her healing crystal. With her healing crystal floating over Scully and... Uh, I just think it's it's really interesting how Melissa Melissa obviously is a very tragic character in the end, you know, and he's disposed of vel- relatively quickly in in the X Files mythology. But it's interesting how she is very different from Scully, and she she kind of stands out almost because there wasn't particularly any suggestion that Margaret was particularly into alternative therapy. That William Scully certainly wasn't. He's a very straight <laughs> down the line naval meat and potatoes man, as was Bill. Her, her brother. So it's, it's, it makes you wonder where Melissa got that from and what her experience was that got her to the point where she would dangle a crystal over Scully and try and channel a psychic energy. Which is, I'm not sure we ever got like the relative age. Did we ever get the relative ages of the, the Scully children? Because I'd sort of imagined Melissa as the youngest of the bunch. I think Melissa's older. And is I, she I, older? I, I say right. this because I'm currently reading Joe Harris's comic. And in that, I know it's a comic, but I know they try and stay close, relatively close to canon in that she's older. I'm just, right. I think Melissa is a little bit older. Yeah. Well, I, can, I can sort of see, and this is, this is part of the reason why I probably didn't care, so, well, I didn't need to see Charlie Scully as the, as the kind of red-haired stepchild of the family, literally speaking. Um, I sort of can imagine in that family group, you generally have one or two children who, like you have the children who are very straight-laced and who follow their parents. Like I think that Bill Jr. becoming a naval officer and being called Bill Jr., very clearly is following his father's footsteps. Yeah, Scully doesn't follow exactly what her father had in mind for her, but she's still working in law enforcement. She's still working for a cause. She's still devoted to this idea of state and service. Uh, and I can see that being a sense of duty that she inherited from her father. And I think that I can see Melissa reacting to that almost. Like I can see her being 
the wild child member of the family. I think that when you have a sufficient number of siblings, you're inevitably going to get one or two who are going to be very different from the others. And I don't know if that's, you know, just a reaction to the family dynamic or if that's just, you know, personality is something innate to somebody. But I, 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 I have no difficulty believing Melissa is definitely a scully. Um, and I think that even if you look at, say, wider families, if you have, like, aunts and uncles, I think you've got one or two who are... Well, I, I've got one or two who are Melissa-like, and I can't account for it. <laughs> uh, which, if they're listening, um, I love them very much. Yeah, absolutely. But where do you come from? Yeah. <laughs> what happened? What happened there? Yeah. Maybe Charles is a massive hippie Buddhist who lives in a commune. Maybe that's why we don't see him. Maybe he's, like, in Tibet. Well, that's it, because Charles kind of has the backstory that I think Melissa had when they get to the fifth season, where they're like, Melissa disappeared and travelled for years. And you sort yeah. of get the sense that with Charles, he, he traveled and he just never came back. Yeah, that, uh, maybe, that, maybe that's it, yeah. But no, she, she is a, an interesting character. Melinda, Melinda McGraw, who plays her, plays her really well as well. She, she's, right. she invests the character with a great deal. I mean, she's well-written anyway, but she invests the character. She could have been really annoying and irritating and, and you, you know, just one of those characters who just stands out for being really gripey and, and, and moany and whingy, but she's not. She's actually... But also, like, New Age cliché sprouting, which was yeah. very popular in, like, 90s television. I mean, look at, say, The Blessing Way, for example. Like, yeah. Melissa, Melissa could have been The Blessing Way incarnated. Yeah. Um, and I think it's a credit to, to Morgan Wong and to Melinda McGraw that she, she works so very well. You're, you're absolutely right. She's She is well-rounded and she's a good character. And obviously, you know, Mulder finds out that she's Scully's sister, um, when Margaret turns up, and then we get she places her hand on his and gets him to join her in trying to feel Scully's energy, which is you know something Mulder's not at home with, and we obviously we get to that more down the line. But it nicely segues into the first first of the many sort of metaphysical images that we get in the episode, which is Scully. This recurring theme of Scully on this boat in black on a a, 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 a dockside that's full of mist. And she's tethered by a rope to this dockside, with and... with a nice cushion, so yeah, offering back <laughs> support to Gillian Anderson, who again just gave birth. Um... <laughs> That's true. You you gotta love the moment when she was like, "I can't sit here." You're kidding me. <laughs> yeah. And then they went right. Find her a cushion, quick. I'd like to imagine that they put her out in the boat first, and they're like, "Okay, we gotta pull the boat back in and find a cushion." Um... Maybe that's why the rope was there. Maybe that, that the rope wasn't originally there. Yeah, it's not really symbolism. It's more just practical purposes. <laughs> we, we were joking, but it could have been. But it's it's a really great metaphor, you know, metaphorical image and a great allegorical image of, of Scully tethering to the shore, you know. Yeah. And, and we see, obviously, Mulder and Melissa. And the yeah. nurse in the background, Nurse Owens, which mm. I really like. Like, she's there and there's no comment on it because obviously Mulder isn't there on the dock, literally. He's there metaphorically. No. But the audience can see in the background it's Nurse Owens. And yes. without any comment, you're immediately like, why is there a nurse standing? In like, she's not on the dock. She's on the shore. Why is she standing there? But equally, you could you could almost interpret that in the background as being, oh, well, she's in hospital. So there's a nurse. You know, there are nurses yeah, around. Yeah. Even though it is... It yeah. is Odd, and it doesn't yeah. quite track until it, later on when you yeah, uh, yeah but it, it's good that it's there because it's good foreshadowing for yeah. obviously the what the greater things that are going on but it's just it's a re- it's a it's a really good image and it, it, it repeats in a in a really interesting way when you're talking about that scene with with Mulder and Melissa I really like the um the bit where she says your fear is blocking any positive emotions which is and it, it kind of ties back to, to Little Green Men uh, where it's this idea of Mulder as so paranoid that he's dangerous without Scully to, to anchor him 
Like he's so afraid and he's so paranoid that he blocks himself to like hope and to, to you know, to, to belief. And that basically within the X-Files, there's this conflict between the paranoia of trust no one and the hope of I want to believe and the truth is out there. Totally. All goes back to that. Yeah. And obviously he's, he goes off searching for truth when he goes back to his apartment and he puts the X on the window, which is... I'm not sure he's searching for truth, though. I think he's, he may be searching for retribution. Well, yeah, <laughs> that's true. That's true, certainly, in the context of this episode. And he... Um... With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. He puts the X on the window, which is just the best. Now, I may have mentioned this before, but this is just, it's just the best, one of the best motifs, just the things that the X-Files ever did. Just, yeah. just having that. It's just so iconic. Just putting an X in tape on a window. And having it's, the light behind it as well. It's like a little bat signal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, it's it, exactly. Yeah, it's a real bat signal, and obviously it gives X his name. Even though I think Mulder does refer to him as X later on in the show, but at yeah. this point he's just he's not named. The you know, informant. He's, just, he's the informant. Yeah, he's he's just a, he's just the guy. Yeah. But obviously, crucially, he doesn't turn up. Yeah. And he and it's it's immediately. I mean, there's a lot of over these first few episodes where we see X. There's a lot of and especially in this one, there's a lot of contrast points made that he's very different to Deep Throat but I think one of the big things first off with this is that Deep Throat wouldn't have kept him waiting yeah you know, Deep Throat works on his own schedule yeah exactly so that's Moldy Mulder's frustrated that you know he's not getting any any help from X to try and you know find who's who's done this but even then you have this idea that instead of being at the hospital with Scully he'd rather wait around on the hope of, of retribution which I think it conveys to the montage and then Things as as the episode progresses, the things that Mulder would rather do than be there for Scully get progressively darker. Definitely, it's all building towards that, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. The next scene really stands out in my mind for for two reasons. Firstly, throw Hickey in a bow tie, which is adorable. <laughs> which is adorable. It's like when you dress up a, a a cat or a dog in like in funny clothes, yeah, right? It's like that... <laughs> I just I like the idea that this is what throw Hickey thinks is appropriate hospital visiting wear. <laughs> He's a, he's a little pervy, but you get the sense his heart's in the right place. It's like, this yeah. is a show of respect and a sort of a gesture of concern is the fact that I'm wearing a three-piece suit and bow tie. It's, it's, it's a great way to reintroduce him and the gunman. We haven't seen them very often. And this is, it's, it's a nice way of, of reintroducing the idea that Frohickey, because obviously from the very beginning, he had a crush on Scully. You know, he, he was quite pervy in, in EBE, as you said. And he um, remains pervy throughout the run of the show. He, he does, but in this, it is a, it is a sweet gesture, you yeah. know, that he that he brings flowers and he's he's dressed up and he's genuinely worried about it. Yeah, I think what what stands out for me for this though is that I remember watching season two 
first. When I, when I first started watching it in, in the 90s, the early 90s, I remember watching this first. And, and this scene, weirdly enough, was one of the first things I ever saw. And the reason it sticks in my mind is because I didn't have any idea who Frohickey was. When, <laughs> when he turns up at the hospital and Mulder then goes, Frohickey? That was me. I was going, who's this guy? Is well, he important? He's memorable. Um, <laughs> who's this like little old guy in a bow tie? <laughs> you're never going to forget Frohickey after that introduction, do you? No, exactly. It just, I just never, it was just great. It just sticks in my mind that that confusion in my head was like, and who, I'm going to have to find out who these people are. And it did take me a while to go and watch EBE, funnily enough. But there you go. It's a nice way to get the gunman back into it, which obviously connects to what Frohickey finds on Scully's chart. And we get some nice bants between Mulder and the gunman here. Oh, yeah. Um, and Byers, or not Byers, Langley taking a pot shot at Earth 2. Yes. <laughs> which I think yeah. was one of the first sort of like the X-Files and say Star Trek The Next Generation started this sort of mini revolution in science fiction and 90s television where you had lots of networks and lots of shows trying to emulate that success. And Earth 2 uh, was one of the lamer earlier effects or earlier attempts. Indeed. I always remember that being advertised on Sky 1 in like 1990. Yeah, 1994. Yeah. 1995, watch Earth 2 with Tim Curry. And I was, like, um, was Tim Curry in it? I'm sure he was. I might he probably was. Him. It looks like the kind of show Tim Curry would be involved exactly. in. Exactly, yeah. And I think I may have watched one or two, and I was just depressed and bored. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't do it again. It was no VR5. No. Or Space Precinct from Jerry Anderson. I, um, I, I haven't watched Space Precinct since I was like seven, but I have fond <laughs> memories of it. <laughs> I like the makeup. Yeah, yeah, it was nicely bad. <laughs> it's, yes. it's, you know, it was like if Blade Runner were a cartoon and had <laughs> aliens in it. I think is the memory that I took from it. Alien dinosaur rhino things, yeah, <laughs> yes. in, spa- in police outfits. Yes. Uh, <laughs> if only we were making that up, we're not. But yeah, so this is uh, a good scene. Good, some good bands. First mention of the Thinker as well, who would appear, br- albeit briefly, in um, in Anasazi. Um, as the the unseen, you know, uh, fourth member of the Beatles. Sorry, the gunman who uh, Kenneth yeah. Suna is it? I think he eventually is revealed to be Kenneth Suna. Indeed, that sort of sticks with me for some. Uh, yeah, Kenneth Suna because it doesn't fit the way he looks. No, well. not at all. <laughs> but it's 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 a good it's a good moment where obviously you know Byers quite you know grimly tells Mulder you know Scully's immune system has been decimated, which is a horrible description, but says that there's not much hope but it's the first mention of people being tagged by their dna which does come back in the mythology quite a bit over the years about people being catalogued and tagged especially toward in anasazi and that storyline yeah and obviously it comes back in the revival as well in a big way yes absolutely yeah definitely so it's uh it's a big it's a big mythology point there but i mean even after Byer says that he also underscores the theme of the episode by literally saying the line Mulder, there's nothing you can do exactly it's continuing that I like idea Byers. Yeah, bias is great. They're all great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's always lovely when they. I like. I think I love. I love the gunman more when they when they pop in and out. Yes, I think thirteen episodes of their own TV show may have been uh, a bit much. No, look, they're lovely. Bless them. But yeah, <laughs> then we're back in the hospital, and this is where we first see Nurse Owens, and she wills scully on and says it's not your time you need to keep going you must leave here only when it's time see she's a lot more invested in patient care than good old doctor um whatever his <laughs> dr. name Daly, is dr yeah. daly it's true it's just like she's probably gonna die you guys yeah. you guys be cool with that yeah 
fine. Just accept it. She obviously is more than a nurse, and it's something that we don't fully find out toward, until the end. There's a clue, I suppose, here with the fact that when Owens, when Mulder turns up at the bed, he doesn't look at yes. Owens, presumably because she's not there. It's the kind of sixth sense thing. And he interacts with the other nurse who comes to draw the blood as well, which is yes. quite odd because you're kind of like, if you're watching that, you're wondering, well, Owens is right there. Why wouldn't she draw the blood? Right, exactly. Let's 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 talk about this. What what do you what do you make of her? What 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 is she or it or whatever we're talking about? Well, I think she's she's a guardian angel or a benign entity or a representation of the divine, which I think the X Files sort of really invests in sort of going forward. It becomes sort of a a big recurring sort of theme for Chris Carter around say the fifth or seventh seasons. Mm. Um, this idea that God is at work in the world uh, and all that sort of stuff. And I don't think Nurse Owens is explicitly. Uh, god or explicitly a guardian angel but she's very much in that style and you get the sense like when carter reveals what happens to samantha in the seventh season i'm going to be vague so we don't spoil it for anybody who's watching it yeah there's a sense that maybe nurse owens was involved in that whole side of the paranormal i think trying to like connect that aspect of the paranormal together um, in terms of the universe, the X Files is sort of is even harder than trying to make the mythology make sense. Yeah, but I think you could argue that Owens is a, is a representation of that within, like within the X Files framework. She's the embodiment of the paranormal as hope. I think that's a lovely way of putting it. Actually, yeah, I really do. I think that's I think that's spot on in terms of what they're trying to get across. Certainly in this episode as well, and it's it's nicely there without being too explicit. I mean, I think that's what it does really well. It's that whole sleight of hand thing in that you know something isn't quite right about this this woman and this moment but you, it, she could just be another nurse it could just be someone nice someone it's good it's well executed because it's just there in the background and you're you're so concentrating on the main I, the main story and Mulder and all this that it wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me if a lot of people got to the end and had almost forgotten her until yeah until that final scene yeah and I think that's I think that's really well done I think what's what's kind of interesting is this is one of the very rare examples of a what is explicitly a mythology episode that has a supernatural non-alien element. Yes, to it. definitely. And I think that that's a very clever thing that sort of throws you off because even if you know there's something odd about Nurse Owens, you're thinking, well, okay, this is a story about men with suits and aliens. So you're like, okay, there's no way that she's going to turn out to be some sort of supernatural, possibly divine entity because that's not within the framework of what the show, how the show tells these stories. I think, I think that's clever. I agree. I agree. And I suppose because it's, it's the show's way of, I guess, cheating almost and having yeah. the supernatural element in, a, in an episode, which isn't, I mean, obviously what happened to Scully is, is unknown, but yeah. there's no other supernatural events going on. It's, it's a thriller effectively, as yeah. well as all that stuff. So it's, it's a good way of having your cake and eat it, I guess. Yeah. And talking of thriller, this is where we get what is for me, one of the best, like action sequences the show ever did where yes. Mulder chases the guy I mean the, 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 for a start the music from Mark Snow is brilliant throughout this because it's just this thumping you know twinkling beat on the soundtrack which really when Mulder goes after the guy who takes the blood chases him through the stairwell it's, it's really exciting and tense. And I think that this sequence is entirely to blame for like the for the abundance of hospital-related action scenes that the X-Files does over the next nine years or so. <laughs> That's I th- true. I think yeah. a lot... And we'll talk a bit more about that when we get on, but I think that a lot of what the X-Files chooses to do as press, as sort of as, as its big showcase moments can be traced back to how well those things work in one breath. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. But they never did it better than this. No. Like, I mean... Skinner tracing Krychek, I think, is one such example, or the confrontation between um, 
what's his name, Delgate and Krychek. For Krychek seems to be involved in a lot of hospital he, allocations, he altercations. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. I hadn't thought of that. I'm <laughs> kind of surprised that this guy. Yeah, I'm surprised that this guy didn't turn out to be Crycheck until, <laughs> yeah, until it becomes clear why he couldn't have been Crycheck. No, he, uh, he, if it had been Crycheck, he'd have found a way to get away or not been shot properly or had an arm yeah. chopped off or lost an eye or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Crycheck just steadily lost more organs as the, as the show went on. <laughs> so if he'd survived past the eighth season by the twenty fifth, sorry, by you know by the tenth season, he would have been a disembodied head. Um, <laughs> They could probably still get away with bringing him back, like with with one leg and one arm, and just yeah, I'm still still alive. with an eye patch. Yeah, with an eye patch, <laughs> I'd buy it. But obviously, in the middle of of this chase sequence, brilliantly, they throw X into the mix, and it's such an electric. This is this is my favourite moment between him and Mulder, and they they do have some really good moments later on in the show, still. But this is my favourite by far because it, it X just thrusts a gun in his face and tells him to give up. And basically says, this is too dangerous, give up, grieve, and, you know, carry on. And I did this. And this is what I love about this. He basically turns around to Mulder, and this is the biggest clue we ever get about X and about who he is or who he was, in that he says, I used to be you. And the, I've, I've always taken that to mean that maybe X was a, was a guy who was looking for the truth and discovered that there was something going on. And he, and he ended up selling out, and he ended up joining the Smoking Man and the Forces, and then he basically got to a point where he couldn't do it anymore. And then when Deep Throat started giving Mulder information, Deep Throat would have said to X, look, if I get killed, you've got to carry on with this because he's going to need this information. And X had enough residual guilt, maybe lost someone like Scully. And he had guilt because he couldn't let it, let it go in order to do this. I don't know. That's what I always took from it. And I, I think it's a great line. It is, it is a great line. I almost read it like the opposite way. I read it as like... X is sort of goading Mulder there. Like there's a sense of, and it, it comes up again and again in the episode where X is like, I've been where you are. Um, and you know, I'll take care of this and all this sort of stuff. And I'm pointing a gun in your face, which sort of says the, the message that X seems to be sending to Mulder isn't like, look, I'm being compassionate and caring. It's like, you don't have the balls to do what I'm doing. <laughs> I look at you and yeah. I think you don't have it in you to do the terrible things that I'm doing, like executing this guy in cold blood, which I feel needs to be done. And later on, like X gives him that chance. Like X offers him the chance to become him. So I don't think saying you're not me is like a gesture of compassion saying, look, I don't want you to be me. This is X saying you don't have the fortitude to do what I do because what I do is manly and like leave the work to grownups. You go home and you, you mourn and you'll live with it on the day that you die. Because he won't do anything about it. His dialogue does bear that up, bear that out, actually, doesn't he? Because he yeah. does say, you haven't got the heart. Yeah. So you may be right there, definitely, yeah. I mean, yeah. and I think later on, like, and, and recurringly over the course of, of the episode, you have the male characters like Skinner, like the Cigarette Smoking Man, and like X, repeatedly offer Mulder the chance to basically to become what X is, to take the chance to, to take a life to kill in cold blood for retribution, to feel better about yourself. I think that's what X is saying when he says, you know, you'll learn to live with it on the day you die, which is I learned to live with it by killing people. That's how I get by. Uh, and I think that's sort of like, I think that's what X is saying. I think X isn't like being compassionate and considerate. X is like, I honestly, I'm not sure that you have the ability to do what you need, what I feel you need to do. And, and the cigarette smoking man pretty much says that exactly to him later on. I don't think you, you know, you're becoming a player. I didn't think you had it in you to kill that guy because I know you because you're soft. Um, and I think <laughs> yeah. he doesn't say that, but we'll, we'll get to that conversation later. And I think like, 
and then X like X grabs and pushes him against the wall and points a gun in his face. And it's like, look at how look at how powerful I am. Yeah. Yeah, look at what I can do, and you can't. And then he then he in a really cold scene, he yeah. just shoots the guy dead when Mulder catches him. Yeah, he shoots the guy it. twice. Yeah. <laughs> He shoots the guy, has the conversation with Mulder, and then, like, here's the guy sort of crawling away or whatever. He's like, okay, excuse me, I'll take care of this. Yeah. And it, it's beautifully shot by Goodwin. It's shot mm. as a silhouette yeah. as well, which it, which makes it somehow more horrifying than actually seeing it, I think. Absolutely, yeah. He's, he's, it's just like a specter of a man. Just it, It's, it's yeah, yeah, brilliantly done. And it just, it leaves you, you know, for want of a pun, breathless. I think that whole scene, it really does. Every time yeah. I watch it, I get chills because it's just so brilliantly put yeah. together. And obviously, so at this point, yeah, he's he's been, the, he knows that people look into this. He's, he's hearing this stuff from X. And then when he goes back to the hospital and he's he's debating with with Margaret and Melissa and, and the doctor, he's he's now at odds with, with the Scully family because Melissa is saying, you know, the doctor's saying, we're, you know, we're, to take her off life support and Mulder's saying we need to look into this there's therapies for this and Melissa is saying look the human natural response is to is to let nature take its course effectively and to let that human side come out and Margaret makes the point Scully's decided because Scully's will was very clear that she didn't want to live like that yeah. so it, I like the way it puts the power in Scully's hands there even though she's not awake and she's not conscious she's making her decision, the decisions for herself as well yeah. which I like Even but it's just that Mulder at this point can't deal with it yeah, and again, it's, it's this idea of Mulder being powerless. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it fits. And then you have, after that moment, the rope disconnecting from the from the lake, and her f- beginning to float away into the into the mist. Very heavy symbolism. Very yeah, cool. giving Gillian a break because she's <laughs> knackered. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, even even before you get to that bit, you have like Melissa and Margaret Scully offering Mulder an alternative. So all the male characters in one breath push Mulder towards murder and violence and retribution. And then in that scene where, where basically Margaret makes the very convincing case that Mulder should respect Scully enough to respect her wishes, she also basically says, look, this is a time for family, but you're welcome to join us if you want. And Mulder shakes his head. Yeah. Like, you can be with us and you can mourn and you can love and you can, like, reach out to her and you can spend the time with her that you need to spend with her, uh, which is, is perhaps a sort of a stereotypical feminine response to something like this, to trauma. Whereas all the male characters are like, look, why don't you grab a gun, go out and shoot somebody, you'll feel better. Which is sort of what tempts Mulder, and that's sort of the decision that Mulder has to make over the course of the episode. And then obviously the next scene, he, he seems to be making it. It looks like, you know, all hope is lost for Scully at this yeah. point for, from his perspective. And that this is what triggers what at the outset is his, his rampage in that he goes to, well, he ultimately goes to Skinner because Smoking Man, he's, he's introduced <laughs> here and we yeah. see Skinner, another little, you know, power play between the two of them thank you for not smoking thank you for not smoking in fact i may have got this confused because i think when when we were talking about little green men i think i talked about this happening in that episode and i think it happens here which is where he points and uh, and says no thank you yeah thank you for not smoking so i think i got mixed up there in both episodes there's this both written by morgan and wong there's this power play thing going on and smoking man leaves and Mulder comes in and plays dumb which is which is really nice and you know when skinner's when, you know. when Smoking Man leaves, though, he leaves the cigarette in the ashtray, so yes. you have the smoke in the air, so Mulder can, like, know that he was there. He knows he was there. Which I think is a nice touch for, like, a nice representation of what the cigarette Smoking Man is. Like, even when he's not there, he still lingers. He's, he lingers. And yeah. it also, it, it makes then, it's a good visual way of, of being able to connect to when Mulder makes the connection with yeah. Smoking Man and says, look, this is the guy, I'm pretty sure, uh, who, who's behind all this. 
And it's... I really like Skinner's little Godfather line as well. He sleeps with the fishes. He sleeps with the fishes. We're not the mafia, Agent Mulder. He's just—he's so good in this, Mitch Pileggi. Yeah. I mean, it, it, especially in the later scene, which is beautifully written for yeah. him, but in his monologue. But he's so good just being badass. Was actually, <laughs> you know I was actually—I mean? was talking about this on Twitter a little while ago, and uh, somebody pointed out to me that there's an argument made that one breath is the moment that the X Files becomes an ensemble piece in yeah. that all of the characters in it have their own, like Mulder has the big central arc that drives the, the episode. And obviously Scully is a major part of that, but even the minor characters like Skinner and like the cigarette smoking man, and even Mr. X all have their own little growth and their own little development. So Mr. X goes from like thinking Mulder's not strong enough to offer him, offering him a chance. You know, Skinner goes to, to stand up to the cigarette smoking man and open himself up to Mulder, like, and, and actually talk about stuff that needs to be talked about. And uh, I think it's a fantastic use of the, the ensemble as a, as a whole. I think, I think that's, there's a lot of truth to that, yeah. yeah. I, think that's, I think that's very true. And I think what, what I really like about this scene with, with Skinner is when they're talking about, you know, Scully and everything like that, Skinner makes the point that, you know, she, she knew the risks. When, when, she, when she became an FBI agent and she joined you, she knew the risks. And he says, well, what if she didn't? What if I didn't really tell her quite how dangerous all this was and then he says well you know better than the smoking man and that's brilliant because it really it only adds to Mulder's guilt and it comes up again um later on this idea of like men not being able to to talk about things that they need to talk about when like scully's visited by her father and he says i never told you how much i loved you um and it's it's sort of you get a sense of that like Mulder never actually talked to scully about what they were doing uh because it was too close or it was too personal to him i think yeah and it all go yeah, it goes back to the fact that there were things that, yeah, that were never said. And that that is a beautiful scene when William Scully appears in his full naval uniform in this <laughs> <laughs> Because in heaven you're always dressed fantastically. In, yeah. Yeah. Or you or, or your all your eternal wardrobe is available to you. So anything yeah. you ever wore, you can just pop on whenever you want. Well yeah, I just like the idea that you get to heaven and you're issued with your white dress uniform because it fits with the aesthetic. It's like but I yeah. like my naval over my, my blue overalls better. It's like no no no, these are the dress code. Yeah. Uh, it's all that. white. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but it's it's a lovely it's a really interesting moment you know Scully's on a table you have the darkness she's in in, she's in like a grey like haze with on this table and then there's a darkness out of which William Scully walks and it it really it's a really nice simple way actually of representing the 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 space between life and death yeah it's it's really it's really cleverly done actually it's not too fancy it's not too it's almost like a, a, a a stage like a, you can imagine a play being performed on something like that. It's very simple, but it gets across the idea. And Don Davis, who plays Bill, uh, William Scully, gets to deliver a really nice little brief monologue. Um, I'm kind of sad we never really saw him after this. I know he's mm. dead. Uh, the character <laughs> being dead is a major <laughs> handicap on this. I don't know. It's the X Files, you know. <laughs> yeah. But I am kind of sorry that William Scully never got, uh, or William Scully Senior never really got more more exposure. Because uh, Davis is really good, he is good, and, he, and I mean, obviously he only appeared very briefly in Beyond the Sea before he dies yeah. as well. So yeah, it is a bit of a shame. It is a bit of a shame. People who um, want to um, at least get a little bit more of William Scully, though, read Joe Harris's latest comic Ishmael um, because it's very much about William Scully actually. And even though it's not necessarily canon, even though it's set it's set during the miniseries, the new miniseries, not canon Shannon. Yeah. If it's it, good, it's really, good. Yeah, exactly. And it, it's an interesting story. I mean, yeah, check that out if you want a little bit more about the Scully family and the history of the Scully family. But after this, you have 
basically Mulder getting his little clue when he's with Melissa in the hospital when a, a random woman comes up and drops him a pack of Morley's. Pack I of did, Morley's. Not I my brand. I did wonder about this scene, right? Because mm. like, yeah. it later turns out that it was Skinner who gave him the information, right? Yeah. So first of all, how did Skinner get the little note inside the Morley's? Because Mulder has to peel off the tin the foil outside <laughs> it, right? It's a very <laughs> intricate message delivery system. That's true. Second of all, was the woman who did this, was she like involved in this? Was it like a little routine yeah. that Skinner sort of practiced? Like he's like, okay, well, we're going to do some improv now, right? Um, yeah. So what if Mulder says, actually, <laughs> I do have change for cigarettes. How do you react then? <laughs> and then it's like, okay, well, what happens if some random person goes to the machine to get a cigarette before you get in there and puts their hand in the thing's like, oh, Morley's, I think I'll have one of those. It, yeah. It's one of those delightfully sort of oblique uh, sort of X-Files communication sequences it, where you yeah. feel like if it didn't work out exactly the way that it worked out on screen, somebody would be wondering why they got an address in like West Georgia Avenue um, in their, in their <laughs> yeah. they wrapped in. What's you know, this? Yeah. I like, yeah. Did I win a prize? <laughs> <laughs> if I go there, what will happen? <laughs> yeah. But it, it, I did wonder who she was. I, I kept thinking, because you never see her again. She's not named. No. She's just a random woman. It could be a girlfriend of Skinner or an ex you know who knows <laughs> I love uh, yeah, well Skinner's personal life is a bit of a mystery until the, yeah. the third season and even after that so I do like the idea that Skinner has like a vigorous life outside the X-Files where he's kind of like okay honey I need you to do a favour for me no <laughs> questions it wouldn't surprise me yeah. it is an interesting scene there's an interesting factor as well about Morley's because obviously Morley's becomes um, the fictional brand of cigarettes that the Smoking Man smokes throughout the X-Files um, and the episode Brand X in season seven very much deals with the Morley Tobacco Company, and there's a big storyline there. Um, Another cigarette smoking man, if you will. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but did did you know, and did the viewers know that Morley, as a fictional brand like Marlboro, goes back to Psycho, the film I Psycho? Did not know that. I knew it was used uh, outside of the X Files. I didn't know that it went back that far. Yeah, um, it is used in other shows as well. Yeah, it's 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 not just the preserve of the X Files. It, it's um, it possibly first originates in Psycho. It's not completely definite, but um, it's like Oceanic Airlines. I think it's one of those things that like we need a company that sounds like it could be a thing uh, in this. So let's all use. Let's all pretend let's, that yeah. Or pretend it's apparently a play on um, Marley's, which is a nickname uh-huh. for Marlboro cigarettes. Wow. So um, yeah, that's an interesting little thing. In the uh, and when I first before I did a bit of research, I didn't know that Marley's was outside the X-Files. So it's it's interesting how that's used. Yeah, so obviously this leads Mulder to the Smoking Man for what is probably not just my favourite epi- my favorite scene of this episode, but possibly one of my favourite scenes of the entire show. And, it, and it, it's it's also my the favourite my favourite confrontation between Mulder and the Smoking Man. Yeah, well, I mean, you could argue that they really just keep doing variations of this after the point. Like even yeah. his confrontation, my struggle too, yeah. is very much shot. It's shot and constructed in terms of one breath. You know, Mulder shows up standing over him, sitting in a chair, pointing yeah. a gun at him. And then the cigarette smoking man justifies what he's doing by reference to, you know, um, the secrets that people cannot know. Like, it, it's a scene that is hugely influential in terms of like where the show goes. Massively, yeah. massively. And, he, and, he, he, and you can see why. Oh, God, yeah. It's got some incredible dialogue. Like, uh, you know, don't try and threaten me, Mulder. I've watched presidents die. It's just a fantastic line. It is. Um, and he, in the way Smokey Man managed to turn this around on Mulder is brilliant. Because when Mulder comes in, he points a gun at him and he says, you know, she's going to die. I'm going to kill you. Just tell me why. And then, you know, why didn't you kill me and all this? And, it, and then he turns it around brilliantly by manipulating Mulder. 
yeah. in such a fantastic way and and still dangling that that you know that element of truth and saying you know if you kill me you can kill me but you'll never know the truth and that's why I'll win and it's it's just yeah like you said it's it, they just keep copying this basically right up to the truth right up to my struggle too and it's the same conversation in in many ways it's just never been done quite as well with such great dialogue yeah, well, this is this is what sort of interests me about about the scene is the there's a bit where the cigarette smoking man sort of justifies himself um, and he says, you know, look at me, no wife, no family, some power. I'm in the game because I believe what I'm doing is right. And there's a sense of ambiguity, and I think it's there in the second season, and it sort of it evaporates very quickly in the third season. But in the second season, there's this interesting idea that the the show plays with that the cigarette smoking man he may be a monster, he may be a villain. But he may be right. He may have some philosophical point about like what he's doing and why he's doing it. That there may be some things that you can't trust people to know, and that you know maybe Mulder's idea that everybody should know everything all the time is not the best. And it sort of comes up here, and it comes up in F. F. Emasculata uh, again later on the season, yeah. where the cigarette smoking man basically gets to win this argument with Mulder, which is striking. And I think that later on the show sort of makes the cigarette smoking man more more obviously a villain. It yeah. makes him more obviously selfish, more obviously greedy. Like it's very clear that he's he doesn't actually believe what he's doing is for the greater good. He believes that it's good for him. He's more of the devil archetype, isn't he? Later yeah. on. Well, not, not even that. He's he's. There's also a sense that he's sort of like a, a like a impotent old man who's trying to stay alive, doing whatever <laughs> it takes to stay alive, uh, yeah. which I think undercuts a lot of the the power of this confrontation. Um, and I think my struggle too does sort of try to get that back a little bit, where it allows. The, the smoking man to make a similar point where it's like, look, I'm pretty bad, but people are also terrible just in general, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's interesting how um, for such a great scene, it almost didn't happen because um, R.W. Goodwin initially wanted Morgan and Wong to trim this scene down because he didn't think that Bill Davis could act and just yeah. appear more than smoking a cigarette. And uh, a few other people were worried about it in the crew, but Morgan said, "You know, this this guy's an acting teacher in Canada, right? He's he knows how to act. He just he's come in for a part that he's nobody nobody knows who he is. He's not famous. He's coming for a bit part for you know, and so um, he basically does the Raiders of the Lost Ark thing in the pilot. Yeah, that, that's yeah. his function. <laughs> yeah, he does. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly it. And he says um, Goodwin discussed the character of the smoking man and the role with Davis." And then he was ultimately, after Bill Davis did this brilliant performance, that the first true performance as the smoking man, as, as we start to know him, because he properly gets the dialogue and he gets, he's able to really do more than say the odd line. He was really impressed. And then from obviously then onwards, whenever we do see the smoking man, he gets more to do. He gets more good lines. He becomes, and obviously over the years, he's fleshed out a hell of a lot more yeah. as a character, as we discussed. But it's interesting how it took a bit of convincing that Bill Davis happen. could even do this, and who you know, imagine if they'd they'd said no, <laughs> what we what we would have lost, we would have lost one of the most iconic, you know, villain characters, adversaries in in fiction. TV's yeah, TV's Darth Vader, I think is how he's been described, which becomes ironic when you sort of get to the end of the third season. But I yeah. think um, yeah. one of the things that's really interesting about the X Files and looking at the production history of the X Files is how much of what becomes iconic and striking and memorable about the show essentially happened by accident yes, or by definitely. happy coincidence without anybody putting in any sort of thought or hope that it would go that direction. So Gillian Anderson's pregnancy is a great example because it basically led to the mythology. Um, and I mean, even, even stuff like casting uh, William B. Davis to, uh, sorry, yeah, William B. Davis to uh, 
to basically to, to do a Raiders of the Lost Ark gag and smoke a cigarette uh, in the pilot turns out to be this huge, huge, you know, sort of boon to the show's run. On that on that scene with the cigarette smoking man, um, again, you have this idea of, of masculinity where it's like Mulder shows up, points a gun in his face, but is unable to perform. And yes. so you, ha- you have yeah. sort of this, it's, it's a very obvious impotence metaphor with the cigarette smoking man, putting a cigarette smoke, a cigarette in his mouth afterwards saying, don't worry, this will be our secret. We wouldn't want others to start, start rumors. rumors. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're sort of one step away from a nudge, nudge, wink, wink, governor joke. True. Yeah. yeah. Um, but again, that idea of what it is to be a man or what, what, what the cigarette smoking man believes it to be, to be a man, you know? Yeah. It's fascinating, really, when when you look at it in this way. I think th- there's another good example of, of a different kind of... Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Masculinity that comes from the scene with Skinner. Um, and obviously, you know, more, more after after the neutered conversation with Smoking Man, Mulder decides that it's not worth do- doing this anymore and decides to resign, hating what he's become, effectively. Does Mulder typo his own name when he signs this? I, I, I've watched the episode a couple of times in high definition, and it looks like he <laughs> looks like he signs his name with two U's. Agent Mulder. <laughs> Mulder. Um, <laughs> I haven't seen that, no. No, it's, the e, it's a U instead of the E at the end. Um, but I just like the idea that Mulder is so emotionally distraught and tired, he forgets to spell his own name. <laughs> if anyone does clot that, screen cap it and send us a picture. Yeah, just sort of see, see if I'm making it up. The agent Mulder. Mulder. Uh, <laughs> but the uh, the scene with with Skinner's monologue is, I mean, a it's it's brilliantly performed by Mitch Pileggi, but it's it's also it it not only illuminates Skinner as a character and gives a lot of shades as to why he's doing what he's doing and, and in his own way trying to protect Mulder and help Mulder, but also plays him brilliantly into this into what Mulder is going through. It's the kind of character work and dramatic stuff which is just phenomenal i mean it it, it is one of the best scenes i think the show ever did actually this the monologue is is just amazing it's breathtaking yeah um and it tells you it tells you so much both about about skinner but also about the world of the x-files yeah um and i think it's sort of it it defines skinner uh in a way that comes back later on how the show approaches skinner because it's basically it's it's i want skinner wants to believe in the same way that Mulder wants to believe but he lacks the courage to sort of to look into it and to push forward. Yeah. And so he's, he's always going to be like a defunct or a broken version of, he's never going to be able to be everything that Mulder is able to be in terms of the show. And I think that becomes an issue in say the fourth season when Skinner tries to deal with Scully's uh, cancer in a different way than Mulder and Skinner ends up horribly compromised and horribly scarred as a result of it because he lacks the commitment and the purity and the focus of, of Mulder, the certainty. 
of Mulder. You know, he, Skinner, Skinner is always sort of compromised, always sort of unable to make the leaps that Mulder can make. Definitely, definitely. And th- this is the first instance that shows yeah. the psychology beyond that. It's, yeah. it's, it's fantastic. You know, and it, and it makes the point that, you know, just Mulder can do that and he shouldn't throw it away because of this. But then we get the Mulder still planning to do it and then X comes to him and, as you said earlier, gives him the opportunity. You know, he says, the law will not punish these guys. They will be in your apartment at this specific time. It's all been set up. They're going to come looking for something that isn't there. You can be ready. Kill them with Jean-Claude Van Damme's terminal intensity and <laughs> you're away. Now imagine Mulder sort of bludgeoning them with a VHS. <laughs> but I, I like, what I really like about the scene, and again, it, it's probably down to, to my read on Mr. X uh, more than your read on Mr. X, where it's, X is this wonderfully ambiguous figure where you get the sense that there are going to be two guys who will show up at Mulder's apartment to do some searching. But you, you really have nothing but X's word that these are going to be the two people who actually took Scully. That's as, true. as far as Mulder's concerned, these could be the two guys who didn't properly pay into like the office milk kitty. You know, and <laughs> X is just like, okay, well, we'll, we'll teach them a lesson. Let's get, yeah, let's get rid yeah. of them. Yeah. yeah. I ordered a pizza to Mulder's apartment at exactly 8.17 just for laughs. <laughs> yeah, he's placing a lot of faith that X is not spinning him at, you know, a web. Really, yeah, and, and particularly because later on in, in the show, X is shown to be quite willing to screw Mulder over um, to suit his own interests or advance his own cause. Um, and I like, I like that idea that, and I think the show is smart enough that it's sort of, it's implied. It's this idea that X is offering, he isn't offering Mulder justice, despite what Mulder says. Like it, when he has the conversation with Skinner, Skinner's like, we work for the Department of Justice. And Mulder's like, that's what I want. That's not actually what Mulder wants. Mulder just wants to feel like he's doing something. And that's what X offers. X isn't offering him anything concrete or anything that will actually solve, or even if you believe in, in like that they should be punished, that will guarantee that the people responsible will be punished. X is just saying, look, this will make you feel better. This will make yes. you, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's the quick fix, isn't it? It's the, yeah. this will, yeah, this will make me feel better. This will make me feel like I've done something. This yeah. will make what's happened to Scully less just completely senseless yeah senseless which is, which is arguably yeah, the, the big theme of the x-files is this idea of conspiracy as a way of making sense of the world yeah. so yeah, Mulder's trying to do that with scully's with scully's sort of coma basically exactly and then it's it's really nice that melissa's the one who who drags him out of it and makes him realize that this isn't about this you know he's, he's looking at him. the wrong way yeah exactly and he shouldn't be so quick to, you know, he says at one point when she's saying, you know, the, the light is there, and he says, enough of your harmonic conversions crap. He says, you're not saying anything to me. And then she says, well, don't, you know, you're looking at it from this wrong perspective when you just need to tell her how you feel. You just need to be there with her. And you don't need to go out and, and get this retribution and get this revenge. Yeah. And it is that great moment, as you've brilliantly described all the way through, Darren, in which is where he gives up trying to be this masculine archetype and he decides to to be just there for scully and he gives up this opportunity to get this this revenge that ultimately wouldn't have satisfied him anyway especially if scully had died he would still have been empty yeah it would have turned him into x and x is not a happy man no Um, (laughs) sorry i feel like that's x files pop psychology um what's what's your opinion mr x as a human being he is not a happy man unhappy (laughs) yes i think all his problems can be boiled down to the fact that he's just not happy yeah although glenn morgan has described him as scared so he's that's a good idea he's simplified it yeah and i think i i see i understand that you know he covers it with the anger and the you know the 
the masculinity and the bravado and being able to headbutt Skinner and all this stuff. But in reality, he's terrified. Oh, yeah. Well, and- if, if you want to have me on a later episode with Mr. X, some of the, the stuff later on is very, very clever in how it characterizes his paranoia. Like, mm. X, it is revealed later on, doesn't have the same level of protection that Deep Throat does. No. Like, Deep Throat is... You get a sense that Deep Throat is so casual with Mulder because he knows that if, like, the cigarette-smoking man finds out and brings it up at a meeting, like, Deep Throat probably sees himself as untouchable. Yeah. Um, Deep, Deep Throat's one of the group, isn't he? Whereas yeah. X always struck me as one of the lieutenants. Yeah. X is pretty much like like the, the guy who shoots Deep Throat more than he's like Deep yeah, Throat. Definitely. He's, he's the clocking in guy. He's like uh, Stephen McCarty in, uh, was it Nicey in 731? Nicey, yeah, 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 yeah. The red-haired man or whatever yeah. he was called. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's the guy who gets shown up and has to clean up the messes and all that sort of stuff. And he's like, okay, I'm disposable. I, uh, I don't really have that sort of HR uh, sort of contract protection that Deep Throat has. Um, I get the sense that my performance review will come at the end of a silence pistol, you know? <laughs> Whereas Deep Throat, much like Bill Mulder was, yeah. Yeah. Or when he, before he gave it up, he's one of the grandmasters of yeah. the whole thing. So it's a different kind of, yeah, like you say, it's a different kind of, of confidence and protection. I mean, the, the great example of that is EBE at the end of EBE, where he basically controls an entire army in, in, in that base yeah. and just sends them off with a little shake of his hand and says, off you go. Yeah, and, and he, he walks around with Mulder as if like yeah. he's, got, he's got nothing to hide. It's like, yeah, this is yeah. my friend. I'm just going to show him around our secret conspiracy <laughs> place. That's cool. Don't worry. I'll make sure he signs in on the way out. <laughs> exactly. And it, it is. It's very different. It's a very, very different relationship. And you're right. It would, it would have turned into X. But the moment then... I think the moment that makes my heart break more is less the moment where Mulder goes and sits with Scully and tells her that, you know, he says, I'm here. It's the moment afterwards when he just goes back to his apartment and he just sobs when yeah. it's trashed. They've, they've gone there. They've, they've not found what they wasn't there in the first place. And possibly he, confiscated his porn. Yeah. <laughs> Taking terminal intensity with them as yeah. well to watch on the way home. But then he, he just, he just sobs. He just crumples and sobs because he feels like he's just lost everything. Duchovny is so good at this, and and I think we mentioned it when we were talking about Little Green Men, but like in Paper Hearts, like when Duchovny cries, it's like, I want to cuddle him. Yeah. I want to hold him and say, it's uh, it's okay. I've never actually, watching the X-Files, like Scully goes through hell, Yeah, but I always feel like Scully can hold it together. Like it's Mulder who I sort of watch and I go, oh... Like he, well, I, feel, I feel like Mulder's well, yeah. the one who needs counselling. Well, he and, is because yeah. she, she's his rock. It's not the other yeah. way around, really. She, yeah. He, she needs she can she, hold herself. She's sort of she, got grounding. Yeah, and she needs Mulder in different ways. She, yes. as as we later discover when she's characterised a lot more, she's drawn to his 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 passion and everything yeah. like that. And she's pa- and, and those kind of men. But it's yeah. less about need. She, yeah, like you said, yeah. she can cope. She can look after herself. Yeah, uh, she struggles when he's gone, when yeah. he's abducted but she just about manages to pull it together. She doesn't end up having sex with a vampire while a house burns down. So I think, <laughs> generally speaking, Scully handles Mulder's absence a lot better. Like, Scully Definitely. lasts a full two-thirds of a season without getting involved in, like, a vampire sex antic. Uh, Mulder is like, oh, Scully's gone, okay. Right, gonna have sex <laughs> with a vampire, with yeah. A vampire. Who's also my off-screen girlfriend. Yes. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, yeah, you, exactly. And he, he can't, he can't cope on his own, and and he it takes him to have Scully in his life for him to really realise this, and for it to really hit him. And it's that moment when he crumples in his apartment, when he feels like he's truly lost there, and he's truly lost any hope of 
of getting justice for her or getting understanding why he just can't it's like the end for him. And I think the, the scene in the apartment is also, it is very emasculating. It's like, it's a violation of his home. It's a destruction of like his space. And I think that sort of having him crumple and break down and cry. Like one of the interesting things about the X-Files is that Mulder is a very traditionally feminine character. Like he's, he's of the pair of them. He's the emotional one. He's the irresponsible one. He's sort of, he's the stereotypical sort of like, if this had been a show in the seventies, Mulder would have been a girl because yes. of sexism. Um, yeah. <laughs> but now in the nineties, it's very clever that they take what would have been these, these sexist cliches about portrayals of women and apply them to Mulder. They make him more emotionally vulnerable. They make him more unstable. They make him more irrational which is, is something that you didn't really see in sort of male law enforcement characters um, up to that point. And I think no, they, they, they would have been more like Skinner, wouldn't they? They would have been more that masculine. Yeah. Hyper masculine. Yeah. 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 They would have, you're right. That masculinity would have been much more in those characters now who are the, almost like the broken versions of Mulder. Yeah. As you've said. And I think there's something very clever and one breath really, really hones in on that. That's why I love it so much. Yeah. Well, that's one of the reasons I love it so much. There's a lot to love. It, there really is. There really is. And then by the end, Scully manages to find a way back. She fights She fights her way back. By herself, it seems, as well. Yeah, there, there doesn't really seem to be any supernatural trigger, which I like, because yeah. it's it's just that idea that maybe Nurse Owens and whatever she is gave her a little bit of a push. But I think and, it's... and seeing her father gave her a bit of a push as well. But I think it's what we, we were talking about there. It's like Scully is strong enough that with a little yeah. push, she can pull herself back. Like yeah. Mulder doesn't help her come back. Mulder um, isn't there when she comes back either, which is a nice touch. Mm. Um, it, it, like this, the episode never suggests that like Mulder being there will actually bring her back. It's like, no, yes. Mulder should be there because that's the right thing to do. Because that's, him. yeah. yeah, for, yeah. Uh, well, for, for anybody just in general, he shouldn't do it because it will cure her, um, no. which it doesn't. I like the idea that Scully is strong enough to find her own way back with just a little help from, from yeah. all the sources around her. Whereas Mulder is so completely and utterly lost. And it, it, it's it's really true. And then he obviously gives her the cross, gives her back the cross, and she, you know, and she says, "I had the strength of your beliefs," which is a lovely, a lovely little reaffirmation of Mulder, you know, to say, "I, I felt your belief in the end as well." And I, and I, you know, what was one of the things, not the not the reason, as we've said, but one of the things that carried me back. And you could almost say, in a way, that maybe that part of Scully that was on the verge of life and death came back because she knew that he needed her. Yeah. There's like there's so much to love about that scene. Even the, like the the joke about the superstars of the Super Bowl. Yeah, and here there was reason to live. But like I love the idea that Mulder kept her crucifix for her. Yeah, yeah. Because you find out. I don't know if it's been suggested to this point, but it's revealed later on that Mulder is staunchly, staunchly militantly atheist. I think it's hinted at, isn't it? Yeah. It's not really fully hit on. But this idea that Mulder, who is staunchly atheist and who like despite believing in little green men, won't believe in a big man with a white beard holds on to her <laughs> crucifix for her as a gesture of respect and hope. I think that's, that's just an incredible kind of, I, I don't know that that's, that affected me. That was a very powerful moment yeah. for me. No, I, I agree. I think it's very similar, yeah. but then obviously we get the, the last, the last final, the last twist. moment, the sixth the, sense twist, the sixth sense twist where we find out nurse Owens never existed. Apparently she's not a nurse at the hospital. It's one of those, it's one of those little things. And the X-Files does this so well sometimes where you just get a little bit of a chill down the spine. But in yeah. this case, 
unlike episodes like, for instance, Die Hand Die Valette, where you get the message on the chalkboard from the demon teacher saying you know, something like, nice to work. Me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then, Good and then but, do this again. <laughs> and then Mulder and Scully just both look at each other and go, oh my God, or something like that, that gives you a bit of a chill. With this, it's a warm feeling. You know, it's that feeling that... There's something good there. Yeah, there was something good there that even though it's really unexplainable and it's that moment you go, oh, wow, she was... What? What? It's that moment where you go, oh, well, great. And Scully doesn't, like, freak out. She just sort of yeah. feels her cross and knows that, yeah, and, and it re- it's her faith, you know. She's like, well, I felt that. <laughs> and it's, yeah, it's that goodness. And it's, it's a beautiful way to end yeah. an, the episode, really, and not end it on a dark or ominous note. Because there's been enough of that. Well, <laughs> yeah, exactly. We didn't need to end on that. We, they could have ended it on another like extra scene where Smokey Man goes, ho-ho, she's back. <laughs> oh, but... <laughs> Wait, we'll just have to deal with this more severely. Yeah, exactly. Um, but they don't. They end it on that moment where Scully's found her way back. And it's it's not even a, a tag scene where they're back in the office, you know, yeah. and, oh, business as usual. We don't need that either. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, Firewalker, which is it's fun. I imagine you'll have fun talking about that. <laughs> Yeah, mm. this, this, it's, it's as like, usual. I was going to say it's like all of this didn't happen straight away, <laughs> but anyway, yeah, it's it's just a phenomenal piece of television. Really- I, I, I've, I've often said to people, like you said earlier, it is, I think, one of the greatest pieces of TV I've ever seen, and has and has been produced yeah. in the last thirty years. Yes, I would go with that. It'd probably make my top ten, or at very least my top twenty. Yeah, um, and I watch a lot of television, <laughs> as we all do now, apparently. Now, do. Yeah. In these times of confusion, as yeah. uh, as described on certain podcasts, but yeah, it's uh, it's it's a fantastic episode. Hello, Fox. Not Fox, Mulder. How you feeling, Mulder? I don't remember anything after Dwayne buried. Doesn't doesn't matter. Okay. What's your present? Superstars of the Super Bowls. I knew there was a reason to live. Now you want to get some rest, eh? Just came by to see. How are you doing? Say hi. Mulder. I had the strength of your beliefs. So we'll move on to briefly um, ask you, Darren, do you believe in, which is uh, where I ask everyone about the paranormality of the episode. So um, put simply, do you believe in guardian angels? I don't really. I would like to, uh, to get a variant on, on that particular core phrase. But I mean, actually, when, when I watched the episode and when I, I sort of when I knew you were going to ask about that, I sort of thought back to my granddad who passed away in hospital in a similar situation. So when I, when I talked earlier about like feeling powerless and feeling like there's nothing you can do, it was my grandparents I was thinking of actually. Yeah. And my granddad passed away, but before he died, he was, he was in a coma and he woke up, he opened his eyes and he said his mother's name. Uh, and then he just passed. And I would like to believe, I would like to believe that it wasn't just memories and neurons firing and sort of like a last gasp of energy. Like, you know, the way they say that, like when you go into white life, that's not actually you going to heaven. That's your brain shutting down and sort of switching on the screensaver pretty much <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah. to get very crass. But I sort of, I would like to believe that uh, there is, there was something there and there was something beyond and there is a guardian angel. I don't know that I do. And I don't think that I do, um, but I'm 
religiously, I would say I'm agnostic. Uh, right. In that I am open to experiences, even if I have not had them myself. And I don't particularly believe in them, but I recognize the value that those beliefs have for people. I think I'm very much the same, actually. I'm not a religious man in the sense of, of you know, practicing religion. I don't, I've never felt like I've had a guardian angel. I think my, my own mother does. I think she, she definitely feels it. Well, my mother life. still lights a candle. And really? When, whenever myself or my siblings are going through a stressful experience, she'll go to the church and light a candle. Um, we're Irish, so our, our official religion, religion is lapsed Catholic. Right. Okay. That's the state religion. <laughs> okay. It's, yeah, it, 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 it's, it's something that is t- obviously tied heavily to religion. It's it's defined as an angel that is assigned to protect and guide a particular person, group, kingdom, or country. And both belief in the East and West is that guardian angels serve to protect whichever person God assigns them to and present prayer to God on that person's behalf. So there's definitely a very obviously theological idea behind the idea of an angel. And but this is the thing in, in, in one breath, in that Nurse Owens isn't, presented as anything specifically religious no you know it's it's a very it's it you know it's open to interpretation as to what she is there's no christian angle she doesn't she doesn't appear as a nun or she doesn't appear as she is just well nobody says the word angel even no um which is it's one of the things i really like about because i think the x-files gets explicitly religious later on i think carter sort of embraces it but I, i i get very uncomfortable with how explicitly christian the iconography gets at certain points. Um, I, fi- I find it sort of there are there are points when the show seems to embrace uncritically certain aspects of religion that I, I find uncomfortable, and it romanticizes certain aspects of uh, religion. I mean, I'm saying it like I'm a Richard Dawkins atheist. I'm not, <laughs> but uh, it embraces certain ideas uncritically and sort of assumes that Christianity must be the default religious experience or religious framework. I think one breath very cleverly sidesteps all that by, as you said, making it ambiguous as to what she is, avoiding sort of stereotypical imagery and sort of cliche stuff. Like, I think there's something very primal about what Nurse Owens is. Like, you can understand, even if you don't draw from, like, the the Christian imagery of of a guardian angel, you understand that she's a guardian of Scully in some capacity. Yeah, definitely. I think think that's that's the important reason it works so well, actually. And I think that you know, guardian angel, it's a very personal experience. It's like religion is a very personal experience to people. It's, you know, there are a lot of people who believe they, they have this and believe they that it's someone is watching over them. It's a comforting feeling. It must be a comforting feeling for people to have that. So it's something that is interesting in the context of this episode. Okay, next, we're going to do the X quiz. And uh, you did very well last time, Darren. You got five out of six. You were very close to the full marks, actually. Dan, um, if only I had paused the screen and noted every single character that had appeared on it. I'm not bitter. Not at all. Well, I hope you've learnt your lesson this time. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, so are you ready for uh, five questions and a quote on one breath? Lay it on me. Okay. Even breathless. Let's go. Question one. What is the Bible quote on Scully's headstone? It is, the spirit is the truth from John 5, 7. Wow, that's absolutely spot on. Brilliant. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't even th- I didn't think you'd get the actual. I thought you might get the quote, but I didn't know you'd get the the Bible, the verse, and everything like that. That's that's. I, ha- I have watched One Breath a lot. <laughs> uh, well, you're going to do well then. I, I think you're definitely going to get this one because you have actually mentioned it. Name the show Langley and the Gunman are nitpicking over scientific inaccuracies on the internet for. 
Earth 2. Earth 2, as we mentioned before, the Which very is... forgettable. <laughs> it's not if you're lucky. Yeah. <laughs> Question 3. What was the name of the woman that Dr. Daly mentions lived for nine years after her life support was pulled? Karen Ann Quinlan. Karen Ann Quinlan. Very good. I've got a real feeling you're going to get full marks here. Now I, you're I, jinxing it. I, <laughs> I don't know. I've got, I've I, got good vibes. I feel bad that when we were doing this for Little Green Men, when I got the question wrong, I didn't say, thank goodness it's not double jeopardy. Because <laughs> I actually got no witty response from one breath that would suit. Although you can say, you can say, I thought you were becoming a player. <laughs> Maybe we just need to do these afterwards and edit them in. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so question four, how old was Skinner when he enlisted in the Marine Corps? He was 18. It was his 18th birthday. He signed it up. was his 18th birthday. It was Excellent. a draft. Four out of four, doing very well. I've got a feeling you're going to get this as well, because I think you said this earlier. What time will the men storm Mulder's apartment According to X. 8.17 is when X orders the pizza. (laughs) Such a really weird specific time, isn't it? It is. 8.17 It's like not not 8.15, not 8.30. And it's like, because they think Mulder, it's not like they've got a very narrow window because they think Mulder's out of the country, which by the way, is a really (laughs) terrible cover story when Scully is dying. Yeah. Again, this speaks to how terrible the conspirators are at what they do. It's like X shows up. He's like, yeah, Mulder's taking a trip to Puerto Rico. And they're like, isn't his partner and like his best friend lying in hospital dying? Yeah, he felt like he needed to get away. He's had a very stressful time. It completely makes sense. You know, don't don't, don't worry about it. Don't analyze it. Just yeah. go to his apartment. It's fine. Exactly 817. And exactly 817. But if he's in Puerto Rico, surely he's going to be gone for a while. No, no, 817. No. Exactly. Got to be then. Yeah, yeah. It's got to be eight seventeen. Really, really, really random. Right. Anyway, five out of five. You and yeah. me there. So what's the quote? Well, here we go. Let's see if you get this. I've got a feeling you're going to get it. Okay. As I say, character and scene. If you can get him. Is this about the tooth that was found in the cafeteria jello? Oh, that's when Skinner interrogates Mulder about the shooting in the laundry room. Uh, it's after the cigarette smoking man has presented. It's really weird. The cigarette smoking man like presents a document which looks like a proper printed report on what happened. <laughs> he does, uh, actually, even, yeah. though, even though Skinner's like, uh, oh, by the way, Mulder, you know there's no report and no police file. I kind of wonder if cigarette <laughs> smoking man was like, okay, you could read it and then I have to take it back. Yeah, and he's like, but anyway, here we go. Here's yeah. a whole report. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we drafted this in like the six hours since it happened. <laughs> But yeah, if I had a klaxon that could signal full marks, I would deploy it at this point because you've got six out of six. Yay! Yay! Yay. As it stands, you are the only person to get full marks apart from Brooker. Yay! Um, On Lazarus. Which on, I think is Lazarus. a greater accomplishment, given that's not a good episode of television. Although, one of, one of my favourite things from last season is that um, another guest, Matt Latham, who's a good friend of mine, he got five out of six and nearly got full marks on Space. And he was really unhappy that he did that well. <laughs> and he went, of all the episodes to do well on, space. But to be fair, if you watch space, you should be re- you should feel a sense of accomplishment and rewarded for well, it, you know? He did. We, earned we, it. we had great fun tearing it a new one. So, you know, it, was, it, all, it all worked out well. But yeah, if, if I could give you a prize, Darren, I would, because that's Yay. superb. Well Being done. on the podcast is the prize. Oh, you flatter me, sir. So that comes to the end of uh, of our quite epic discussion of One Breath, an episode which deserves you know a bit of extra running time because it, it really is a classic, and we've we've broken it down 
something great. So thank you so much, Darren, for coming back on the show. Thank you for having me. It's been a joy. Thank you very much. Until hopefully you return again, where can people find what you do and where you are online? Um, I'm at the movie blog. So uh, the movie blog spelled exactly like that with a zero instead of an O in movie. Um, I'm on Twitter, Darren underscore Mooney, where I, I randomly live tweet terrible uh, and sometimes good stuff. Uh, <laughs> and I also occasionally podcast with uh, Scan On, which is an Irish film site, and write for the journal.ie. And I hopefully might have a book out on the X-Files by the end of the year, but I'll probably, if you have me back on the show, I may have more concrete information on that in the future. And that's his clever way of bargaining his way back onto the X-Cast. Very, oh, very, very good. <laughs> oh, don't worry, I get the sense that you're, you're probably going to have you back for Tezos Does Beach Us. Yeah, yeah, you might have to fight with Zach Moore for that one, <laughs> because he, he really hates that. <laughs> so, it's uh, the, oddly enough, there might be a scramble for the worst episodes, just for the comedy. And they're um, Teleco and El Mondo Giro. Oh, God. Just get Sanguinarium. Oh, we could just list all these bad ones. Oh, I w- okay. We may do Sanguinarium, although I may argue from a controversial position. Because you like it. I don't hate it. <laughs> Which <laughs> may be the like. best you can do. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's yeah, really best of luck with the book, as I, as I mentioned Thank in Little much. Green Men. And uh, I, I, honestly, I really, guys, cannot recommend Darren's blog enough. It is truly fantastic his articles on episodes of tv on movies they are so good and so worth a read i cannot recommend it enough so no it's a pleasure please please do go and check out the movie blog because it's well worth your time you can find us at uh, the x underscore cast on twitter and on facebook at the x cast and on itunes where it'd be lovely if you could leave us a review and um say what you think about the show but yeah come and talk to us about the x files you know hopefully you know by the time you listen to this or before we'll have news on season 11 so you know the loads to talk about and about the show in general and and you can find me at uh, mr underscore aj underscore black on twitter um if you really want to find me and i'm on facebook actually at uh, aj black um with my page where i have writing and things like that so yeah Loads of things to look up there. Lots of homework, guys. And we'll be back for Firewalker, as we mentioned before, which is a much less impressive episode. <laughs> but it's got but, Josh Lyman as Rambo. It's, they, well, what more? That's, that's the pitch that, you need. There you go. We don't really need to review it now. Let's <laughs> talk about it. It's done. And it is basically ice from season one. In but with day. fire. With fire. That's <laughs> the genius of it. <laughs> Um, so yeah we'll be back uh, for that one once again big thanks Darren for coming on and um, pleasure to be here thank you and we'll hopefully have you back soon until then remember guys as ever trust no one Elsewhere, and we made this. Real talk, the We Made This Movie Show. I watched Rabid Grannies on YouTube for free, and it's got hundreds of thousands of watches. And these are things that they've already made their profit from. So these old films, the trailer just stuck them all up and made some extra money off them, and bravo, because they weren't making money from these extortionate eBay sales, but they made money from Mm. the free views on YouTube. So Mm. I think that's ace. I think bringing those 
ludicrous films to a new generation or indeed an old generation who don't want to pay insane amounts it's nothing but a positive thing yeah yeah exactly yeah I, um, yeah, I didn't, didn't know about that we dig music I need to be very careful this month who I slag off um, in the 1968 episode I slagged off Nick Kamen and he died did you fucking kill him? <laughs> yes I killed Nick Kamen <laughs> did you kill him with your thirst just imagining him in that advert <laughs> your weird thirsty thoughts just finally did for him you, you don't realise, Tracy, I've just recorded your confession and I'll be sending it to the authorities. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, try not to kill anyone, Tracy. I'll try. Say. The time is now. A millennium podcast. But my whole world fell apart. And all they could do, the whole universe, was to silently move on. A quote from author and poet Khadija Rupa. There's one thing about trauma that's especially cruel. It's not the physical and psychological scars you'll have to carry with you your entire life. And it's not the friendships or relationships that may end because of the emotional ramifications as a result of it. It's that life goes on. Check out all of these shows and more on the We Made This Podcast Network.